And as you pray for him, I would encourage you to also pray for his parents and family uh, as parents of uh, a son who's been in the military for the last 16 years. I can tell you that it's never very far from your mind and it's kind of always there and you never get away from it. And uh, so I would encourage you to pray uh, for the Millers if you would today. Um, I don't know about you, uh, in my years as a pastor, um, whenever the kids were up here, it was kind of shock and awe because you just never knew what was going to happen. And when it was my kids that were up here, I usually had my head buried in my lap because I never, I could never expect what they were going to do. I could never anticipate it, but I knew they were going to do something. I, I leaned over to Marlene and I said, it's kind of like watching a crash in a NASCAR race. You know, you can't bear to look, but you can't look away. It's one of those uh, really interesting kind of moments. But the kids did uh, do a very nice job of teeing up the morning for us because they said it's Christmas and the angels are singing. And today we're going to talk about the angels a little bit. Uh, the next few weeks together, as we move into the Christmas season, um, what we're going to be doing is looking at the Christmas event through the eyes and experience of those who witnessed or participated in that story. And today we're going to start with the angels. And, and as we do, uh, it doesn't take a long time of looking around in our culture to recognize the fact that there's a certain amount of fascination with angels. For the last 20 to 25 years, there's been a certain amount of fascination with angels, with uh, TV shows and movies and books and all kinds of stuff written about angels, which, which is very, very interesting. Uh, one of the movies that was made uh, was a movie about my favorite baseball team, which is not the Detroit Tigers, but that's another story. Uh, my favorite team is the Angels, and I always tell people, you might as well start cheering for the Angels now because they're the only team in heaven. Um, <clears throat> it's true. Look it up right there. It's in the Bible. Um, in the 90s, they did a remake of the old film Angels in the Outfield, and and. You have this woe-begone, terrible angels team, which at that time in their history, they actually were pretty bad. And uh, you had this angel named Al who would help them win games. And when some of this started to come out into the public, there was a big controversy about how this was all happening and was it really an angel and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and this woman in the midst of this big debate about whether there was an actual angel and whether he was actually helping the angels win ballgames, this woman stood up and said, I don't understand what the problem is. Everyone here believes in God. Why is it so hard to believe in angels? Now, what I would suggest to you is in the last 25 years, that's reversed. In our culture, People find it much easier to believe in angels than they do to believe in God. There's a disconnect. And, of course, part of that's why you turn on the TV and you see all the Christmas ads, but they're not Christmas ads, they're holiday ads. Why are they holiday ads? Because there's a disconnect. Somehow saying Merry Christmas to someone is borderline to a criminal offense in this country, which is really weird especially in light of the fact that there seems to be so much fascination with angels. So let's talk about angels a little bit and maybe try to clear a few things up because quite candidly, 
most of the stuff in depicting angels today in the larger culture has nothing to do with the actual information that we have been given to describe angels to us. If you look up the word angel, which is the Greek word angelos, the definition of an angel is not an ethereal being in white robes with wings and a harp and a halo and mystical powers. That is not the definition of an angel, even though that's the way they're usually presented, unless it's Roma Downey or whatever. That's old school. You kids won't have a clue about that. An angel, the word angel simply means messenger. That's all it means. It means messenger. The, the word evangelize or evangelism is the Greek word euangelios, and right in the middle of euangelios is angel. Because euangelios is a message or messenger of good news. When somebody brings the good news to someone, they are actually being an angel. Not an ethereal being with mystical powers, but a messenger bringing a specific message. And in the Bible, the word angel is used to describe all kinds of different things. And in the Old Testament, we see the word angel to describe prophets. We see it used to describe priests. We actually see it used to describe forces of nature because even those forces of nature are carrying out a message from God. In the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, the word angel is used to describe the pastors of local churches. Why? Not because they're ethereal beings with mystical powers, sorry Jeremy, but because they have a message to deliver. That's why they're there, to deliver a message. And so this morning, we want to look at how angels fit into the Christmas story because it should not be a surprise to us that in the Christmas story, they are there to deliver a message. And what's so interesting is that it's the exact same message every time, but that message has a different impact every time because of the situation of the person who is hearing that message. Think about it in these terms. For someone who has been struggling with the brokenness in their life, for someone who has been wrestling with the pain and the guilt and the shame of some of their bad choices and wrong deeds and all those kind of things, and they hear the gospel, it can feel confrontational, it can feel convicting, it can feel comforting. For those of us who already know Jesus, who have already made that decision to place our trust in him, when we hear the gospel, it's reassuring. It's the same message, but with very different impact depending on who is receiving it. So let's start and see the angel at work in Luke chapter 1 as we have the first encounter. And technically, it's not the first encounter. The first encounter is with Zacharias about the birth of John the Baptist, but we'll get to that in a minute. We want to focus on the message delivered by an angel to Mary. Luke chapter 1 verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel. Now, a lot of times we see angels in the Bible, they aren't always named. Gabriel's named, Michael is named. That's about it. But it says, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, if you're one of the kids and you have a kid's note sheet, uh, you've already been given some key words. Let me give you another one. The key word is the name David. 
Because I want you to notice how many times David's name appears, and there's a reason for that. The reason David's name appears so often is that in the Gospels, when we hear the term son of David, it almost always is referring to the Messiah. For centuries, the people of Israel had been promised that God was going to send them a deliverer. God was going to send them a rescuer. God was going to send them someone who could bring them out of their bondage and bring them back into rightness with God. For centuries, they had hoped for that. And they had referred to that person, that Messiah, as son of David. David's greater son, because promises were given to David by God that his son, not Solomon particularly, but his greater son would one day rule and reign upon his throne. After centuries of anticipation and quite candidly centuries of disappointment, now the time has come and the angel comes to Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. Kingly line, kingly line, kingly line. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, favored one just means one who has been given grace. One who has been given grace. And it says that that she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid. Now, it's very interesting. Any time in the Bible that somebody encounters something of the supernatural, the first initial reaction is always some measure of fear. Because we don't have categories for the supernatural. It is super above nature. It is beyond anything we have a frame of reference for. And so when we see it, our initial response is fear. We always fear what we don't understand. And that's why when, when, when Jesus calms the waves, it says the disciples were more afraid after they saw his display of supernatural power than they were when they just had a storm to deal with. When John sees the glorified Christ in Revelation 1. He falls at his feet as if dead. Why? Because he's terrified at this. In in the upper room after the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples and his first words are, don't be afraid. Fear is the natural response when the natural encounters the supernatural. And Mary is afraid. So he says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have been graced by God And then he gives her a long statement just packed with information. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father. There's that word again, David. And he will, bless you, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Now, all of that stuff would have mattered to a Jew in first century Israel. Why? Because for centuries, they had been under the rule of one kingdom or another. First, it was the Babylonians, and then it was the Medo-Persians, and then it was the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and now it's the Romans. They have not been a proper kingdom since the days of Solomon. 
And now comes this promise. For Mary, the message of the angel is a message of promise because it is a promise fulfilled through a promise given. Through the promise given to her, the promise that they had been waiting for for centuries and centuries and centuries is about to be fulfilled. This promise is found in this child, Jesus, who will be great. And no one who reads the Gospels with any kind of an open mind can deny that he was anything less than great. He was greater than great. He was beyond great. He was supernaturally great. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And that's what got him in the most trouble with the religious leaders of his day. The religious leaders of his day, they didn't mind people calling him a prophet as much. They didn't mind calling him a miracle worker as such. But when they started calling him the Son of God, it was time to step in. He was the Son of the Most High. Not only that, his father, the Lord God, will give him the throne of his father, David. His heavenly father, will give him the throne of his descendant, that throne that for all intents and purposes has been empty ever since Solomon's death. Ever since Solomon's death. Waiting for the king. Waiting for the kingdom. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. Here's the key idea. Forever. On the larger scheme of things in ancient history, in the larger scheme of things in the ancient world, the kingdom of Israel really didn't last very long. You had a few years under Saul and a few years under David and a few years under Solomon, and then it kind of all fell apart. In terms of ancient history, there were kingdoms that survived much longer than that. It was a relatively small kingdom, and that's what gave such pain and frustration and disappointment to the people. Because they knew that their God is an eternal God. And they knew that what their God wanted to give them had eternal value to it. But it had been truncated because of sin and rebellion and idolatry. And now they are awaiting the king who can take the throne and who can take the kingdom in his hand and make it a kingdom that endures. Not a kingdom for a moment. A kingdom for forever. And that's why it says... And his kingdom will have no end. No end. No end. See, this is one of the reasons why Israel still matters. This is one of the reasons why Israel still matters, because God still has plans for Israel, because a lot of these promises have yet to be fulfilled. And like we await the return of our Savior, they await the fulfillment of the promises of their kingdom. Why do they await them? Because they rejected the king when he came. His kingdom will never end. Now put yourself in Mary's place. She's receiving this message. And it's a message that the promise of history is about to be fulfilled through the promise that's been given to her. But she knows some things. She knows some things. She knows that she lives in Nazareth. She's not exactly in the thriving metropolitan area of Jerusalem. This is a backwater town. It's a town of maybe a hundred people at this point in history. Just a small village. 
Not only is she in the wrong place, she's the unexpected recipient of this promise because at this time, she's probably only 13 or 14 years old because that was the age that girls would become engaged at that time. And so here she is, the unexpected recipient of this promise, and she knows that she's being told that she's going to have a baby, and she knows that she has not done the prerequisite things in order to be able to have a baby. And so she says to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? In Isaiah, where Isaiah uses the word virgin, the virgin will conceive, it, there's been some controversy over that over the years theologically because it's the Hebrew word alma, which can be virgin or can be young woman. And so some Bible translations just translate it young woman and don't translate it virgin in the clinical, uh, technical sense of the word virgin, one who's never engaged in sexual activity. However, the Jews thoroughly and completely believed that that's what it meant, that it meant virgin in the clinical sense. And they proved it when they translated the Hebrew into Greek into what's called the Septuagint, because Septuagint comes from the word 70, and there were 70 scholars who did it. And when they translated Isaiah from Hebrew into Greek, they used the specific Greek term for a medical virgin. And just to make sure we don't miss the point, when Luke, who, oh, by the way, just happened to be a doctor, when Luke writes his account of the story, he uses that same term for a medical, clinical virgin. Mary says, I've never known a man. I've never been sexually involved. How can this be? Now, what's interesting is prior to this, in the early parts of Luke chapter 1, you have the angel coming to Zacharias, the priest, and he's offering sacrifices and he's offering prayers and burning incense and all this stuff. And the angel comes to him and says, you and your wife are going to have a baby. And he's like a gazillion years old. And his wife, very gently, is past age. It, it just says he's really old, but it tries to be a little nicer to her. She's past age. And so he says, how can this be? Now, what's interesting, basically, he's saying, how can this be? We're too old. And Mary's saying, how can this be? We're too young. And the angel says to Zacharias, okay, you're going to not believe me? Fine. You're not going to be able to talk for the next nine months until the baby comes. Which seems to us a little harsh, right? Although Elizabeth must have loved it because it must have been the happiest nine months of her life. <laughs> when Mary says virtually the exact same thing, the angel gives her an explanation. What that tells me is that there is something in the attitude behind the words. The words might have been essentially the same. Something different was in the attitude. And so Zacharias gets silenced and Mary gets answers. And he tells her how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called, here it is again, the Son of God. Mary, this is a supernatural event. You're not supposed to understand it. It's okay. Mary, this is an event where God is fulfilling a promise to your people by making a promise to you. 
And in receiving that promise and accepting that promise, you step into a role you could have never expected. You step into a role you could have never anticipated. You step into a role that you could have never guessed. As for him saying, what a strange way to save the world. <laughs> Here's Mary. And she says, behold, the servant of the Lord. Behold, the servant of the Lord. Let it be done. And she surrenders to God's purposes, and she accepts God's promise. For Mary, the message is, the Savior's coming. <laughs> He's going to arrive on the scene. All of the promises of all of the ages are about to be fulfilled. And Mary, you have a role to play in this. For Mary, the message of the coming Savior is a message of promise. Turn back to Matthew chapter 1. And for those of you who are watching the clock and terrified at how long that took, the next two parts aren't going to be as long because we're going to deal more with them over the next couple of weeks. We just want to get their how the message applied to them and how they received it. That'll be enough for today. Matthew chapter 1, we get Matthew's telling of the story, and Matthew tells the story through the eyes of Joseph. Okay, And we'll see him in a couple of weeks in more detail. What's very interesting, when you study the Gospels, each one of the Gospels has its own unique characteristics because each of the Gospel writers is trying to tell the story in a way that will impact their audience. And so Matthew is telling his story to a Jewish audience, and so he starts off with 17 verses of genealogy. Why? To establish the fact that Jesus is the son of David. That's why. Why? Because he's the king of the Jews. Why? Because that's what the people have been waiting for, and his whole gospel is to prove to them that he came. So you get the genealogy, and then you get the Joseph story. Luke tells the story through the experience of Mary, and he does it in contrast with Zacharias. And what's very interesting is that in Luke's gospel, 27 times, now think about that, there are only 24 chapters in Luke, 27 times Luke puts a man and a woman in the story together to, to, to balance the story. 27 times. So you have in the temple when the baby Jesus is brought, you have Simeon and Anna. And when Jesus is talking about the Old Testament uh, heroes, Elijah and Elisha, he mentions the widowed Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. This keeps going on and on and on, 27 times. That's why it's so important for Luke that you hear the story through Mary's ears and eyes. Here, Matthew wants you to see Joseph's reaction to this message. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, verse 18, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Again, what he's doing here is he's giving you the cliff notes of Luke chapter 1. All right? He's given you the, the Reader's Digest version. They came to, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. There it is. That's all of Luke 1, all in one thing. Now let's take our eyes off Mary and put them on Joseph. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, here it is, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, right? Now, this doesn't mean Joseph's Messiah. It means he's in Messiah's line. He's in Messiah's line. Therefore, the child that he will raise as his own 
comes into Messiah's line and is fit to be called son of David. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Once again, the supernatural and fear. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now here's what we've got to to try to get our minds around, because anytime you read the Bible, and this is something I'm not sure that we keep front of mind nearly enough. Anytime you read the Bible, you are entering into a cross-cultural experience. It's a cross-cultural experience every time you open the Bible. Because their world is not our world. And we have to understand their world. And we have to place ourselves within their world if we're going to get anything out of this. In their world. If a girl who was engaged was found to be pregnant... That means either she's been unfaithful to her future husband or they have been unfaithful to their vows of purity. And both are bad. And in this case, it's worst case scenario for Joseph because of all the things he doesn't know, the one thing he does know is that he's not the father of her child. That's the one thing he knows. Imagine the disappointment, imagine the hurt, imagine the embarrassment, imagine all of that stuff going on in his heart. You've got this whole cocktail of negative and dark emotions just roiling around inside of him because he knows he's not the father. And so the angel comes (laughs) and he says, don't be afraid to take Mary. This is a supernatural deal. You're not supposed to understand it but you need to accept it. And here's what's happened. And here's why it's happened. And here's who it is. And here comes the message. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for is he who will save his people from their sins. Same message. Same essential message. The only difference is that to Joseph, it's not a message of promise. It's a message of comfort. Because this angel has put to rest his fears, has calmed his despair, has comforted his broken heart. In place of personal inner turmoil, Joseph hears this message and knows peace. (laughs) Which is very appropriate because the child that's being described here is the child that the Old Testament described as the Prince of Peace. It's the one who came bringing peace. It's the one who told his disciples in the upper room, my peace I leave with you. I give my peace to you. Not at the kind of the world, peace that the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Be at peace. Those are words of comfort. And he ended the upper room experience by saying, in this world you can have tribulation, but in me you have peace. Words of comfort for Joseph are words that bring peace to his heart. It's very interesting. We'll see this in a minute in Luke 2 with the shepherds as well. It's very interesting. And and if you don't get anything else this morning, kind of try to get this. In our very secularized culture, where we say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, in our very secularized culture, the Christmas story gets ignored except one part. 
The part that our culture grabs onto is the part of peace on earth, right? You see that everywhere this time of year, peace on earth, peace on earth, peace on earth. And the reality of what we're seeing in Matthew 1 with Joseph is this. Yes, this is a message that brings comfort. Yes, this is a message that brings peace. But it is not intended in this moment to bring global peace. Nor is it intended to bring regional peace. Nor is it intended to bring national peace. Nor is it intended to bring local peace. It is intended to bring personal peace. And it brings that personal peace one person at a time. Just like Joseph by himself, racked with heartache. And a message of comfort comes to him. And he finds peace. He learns peace. That's how peace invades our war-torn world. Peace invades our world one person at a time. And as people come to peace with God and come to know the Prince of Peace, it puts us in the possibility of being able to be blessed peacemakers who can likewise be messengers, angels of a message that can bring peace to the hearts of people at war with God and with themselves. For Mary, it was a message of promise. For Joseph, it's a message of comfort. Look at Luke 2, and real quickly we'll see the shepherds. And we don't need to see much of them today because we're going to see them the whole thing next week. Luke chapter 2, verse 8, very familiar words. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. The common denominators in these three events are in each event you have an angel, in each event, you have a message. In each event, you have fear. <laughs> they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, don't be afraid. Every time, don't be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, the very fact that the angel says this is going to be a sign lets you know that that was not normal. If it was normal, it'd be like saying, and this will be a sign to you. The sun's going to come up in the morning. Well, we expect that. We anticipate that. That's normal. It's normal for the sun to come up in the morning. It was not normal for babies to be wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. But for these shepherds, it couldn't be more perfect. They spend their entire lives around animals. <laughs> what better place to go to find the message fulfilled than a place where animals were cared for, where animals were kept, and where this newborn king would be laid in a manger. And so it says, suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. And here's the joy. Not only does the angel bring them a message of good tidings and great joy, they now have the joy of a new mission 
in life. They have spent their lives caring for sheep. Now they have a new mission, and the mission is proclaiming not sheep, but the lamb. That's their new mission. And it says in verse 17, when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Verse 20, and the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as it had been told them. They had received a message of joy and now they joyfully celebrate that message as they proclaim it to others. See, what's so cool about this is these guys become the first angels of the gospel in a sense. They become the first messengers. <laughs> They're the ones who go out and start telling everybody. And that's what makes it work. Because their joy is so full, it cannot be contained. They have to tell people. The Savior's come. The Savior's come. The promises are fulfilled. Comfort and peace are available. And we say these words with joy. <laughs> Same message. Different application. <laughs> now, there are two different ways we could go with this at this point. And we don't need to spend more time on the shepherds. We'll see them next week. But there are two ways we could go with this. The first way we could go was, would be to look internally, and maybe that's the best thing for some to do. Maybe, maybe there are struggles, maybe there are challenges, maybe right now you are just under it and you don't know where to turn, and maybe right now you need some comfort, and maybe you need some peace, and maybe in the reminder of the coming of Christ who is sufficient for all our needs, you can reach out to him and find peace. But the reality also is the other side of it. Even though our culture has tried to neutralize Christmas and take away the Christ, the reality is people in general are much more spiritually sensitive at this time of year. They really are. They get it. They might hear happy holidays, but they know what Christmas is. They know it's about a baby, and they know it's about Jesus, and they may not get it all, but they get that. And maybe the larger question for us to ask ourselves is, are we willing to be available to be somebody's angel? And I don't mean that in the 1950s pop tune kind of way. I mean that in the way of, are you willing to be someone's messenger to bring them good news? That it's not just a holiday. It's a holy day. And it's a holy day because the Holy One of God has come. And to share with them a message. And maybe to them it'll be a promise fulfilled. Maybe to them it'll be comfort and peace. Maybe to them it'll bring joy. But whatever. <laughs> the message is the same. Jesus has come. Will we be angels, <laughs> messengers of good news? Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. And here it is, God and sinners reconciled. <laughs> that is good news. And that is our message.
Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for giving us fulfilled promises, comfort and peace, and the joy of a message that can change lives for all eternity. May we be sensitive this season to men and women and kids around us who need the hope that is found in Christ alone. We pray in Jesus' name.